Let's pray together. Father, our nation is in trouble. Our nation is in a real quandary. Lord, our nation has departed from you, has lost its moorings. Her sails have been ripped and shredded. And Lord, we are adrift at sea without an anchor and without a compass. But we know that with God, all things are possible. And that by prayer, there can be a return to sanity, a return to stability, a return to you. We pray that you'll help this church to play its part in making a difference, to turn this nation back. Give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding today on this Independence Day weekend. Open our eyes, Lord, and help us to see the truth. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn to your neighbor and say to them, God bless America. Amen. You can be seated. We have been sharing on myths. And I want to tell you what a myth is. I don't mean mythology like Greek mythology, uh, anything like that. I'm talking about a myth. What does myth mean? Well, a simple dictionary definition is a widely held but mistaken belief. Uh, it's, it's something that many people believe, but it's not true. A widely held but mistaken belief. Now, many of the myths that we're going to be covering in the next few weeks have had a hindering, paralyzing effect on the church. And that really concerns me because, once again, I really believe that the church is the greatest agent for change in the United States of America. There's nothing more powerful than a praying church, not anything. So last time we discussed the myth of Christian pacifism, and I was sharing with you how we have misinterpreted the words of Jesus Christ when he said, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And that's created this sort of attitude in the church that we're supposed to be kind of wimpy and non-self-assertive and we're not to make our presence felt. We're just turn the other cheek kind of people and, and just walk on us and step on us. And we're really not to be a force in the earth. And I was sharing with you that Jesus didn't see the church that way at all. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. That sounds to me like a people, like an organism whose presence is felt and influential and powerful and assertive for good. So I, I, I'm wanting us to understand from the Word of God that Jesus put the church in the world to be an agent of change and influence and preservation from decay. We are here for a mighty reason in God. There is an incredible call on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now today, I'm dealing with something that I really do believe has, has been used to take the salt and the light out of us and cause us to say, well, you know, I'll just kick back and won't, and won't really try to influence things for the Lord. That's so wrong. And that's the myth of separation of church and state. Now, let me give you the contemporary concept of separation of church and state. The one that is being used now goes way beyond the recognition that the two institutions, church and state, must be separate. The current version of this phrase, separation of church and state, you've all heard it, has come to mean that there should be a complete 
separation between religion and public life. That we have our little deal in here in our church buildings, and once we go outside, we should clam up, shut up, don't speak up, but let the secular world be secular, and we'll just have our little religion on the side. Separation of church and state has come to mean that the church should not impose its values, its morals, or its views about God onto public life. When in fact the church of Jesus Christ has superior values, superior morals, and superior views about God. Our nation right now would instantly begin to be healed if those values and morals were accepted. Now, because of this notion of separation of church and state and the pushing of it onto us by secular forces. In the last few decades, we've seen an incredible thing happening. Nativity scenes from the public square during Christmas removed. The removal of God and prayer and the Ten Commandments from our public schools. And with those things being taken out, metal detectors being put in. Because when you take out the Word of God, you take out the great, uh, the great keeper of sanity and morality. You take out the great influence of God, and when you leave even children to themselves, they plummet into amorality and into violence and into immorality. And it's a sad thing to watch what's happened to our schools now that we have taken God out and considered ourselves too wise for Him. What I want to deal with this time is a question. Here's a million-dollar question for us. Is this concept of separation of church and state valid? Is this what the founders had in mind? Does the Constitution support this view that the church should not have any part to play in public life and, and the government should not have any part to play in the church? That they ought to be two separate entities and never should the twain meet? Is that what they had in mind? Or has the phrase separation of church and state been twisted to serve the agenda of secularists for the purpose of transforming America into their own image? Though the phrase separation of church and state has been around for a long time, a fresh controversy was ignited about whether or not America is a Christian nation or was ever even a Christian nation at all when President Barack Obama said in a press conference in Turkey, quote, we Americans do not consider ourselves a Christian nation. Well, that was news to a lot of us. And I got to tell you, according to the American Religious Identification Survey of 2008, that's not an accurate statement. In that survey, 76%, listen to that, 76% of the population of America identify themselves as Christian. 76%. A Christian population of 76% places America as an overwhelmingly at least Christian identifying nation. And I think that it's time we got our identity back away from the historical revisionists who have invaded high school, junior high, and elementary textbooks who have invaded the literary world of the secular world and have tried to revise our history and our roots from whence we have come and have tried to 
put upon us the notion that we were birthed to be a secular nation and that we don't have Christian roots at all. And, and you know, I believe when all else fails, follow directions. And if you really want to know the truth, you can dig it up in history, and it's very, very easy to find. Can I tell you today that our history shouts that our roots are Christian? Church, let's get it back. Let's get it back. It's time to take it back. Oh, here's a preacher up here. I hear some of you thinking, some of you guess maybe. Oh, here's a preacher. He's going to go out and just be completely biased for Christianity. No, I'm going to give you historical facts today. I'll admit to you I'm extremely biased. I'll tell you that right up front. I am. But, but I believe my bias is rated and rooted in facts. And the facts allow me to be biased. Let's take a quick journey through the religious history of America here on Independence Day weekend, and let's see what history tells us. In 1620, the first pilgrims arrived. A little band of people had crossed the Atlantic in a sailboat, 26 by 113 feet. That's a bathtub. As they stepped off the boat, they landed on the Atlantic coast in the bitter cold of winter. When they got to the shore, they signed a compact called the Mayflower Compact. And the second paragraph begins by stating their reason for coming to this land. And it read, quote, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Why did they come here? For the glory of God. And the advancement, not of any faith, but of the Christian faith. Their first winter was rough, really rough. At times, the daily ration of food was five grains of corn per person per day. Eat it slow. One, two, three. Five grains of corn per person per day. Forty-four of them died in the first five months, and 58 survived. In the fall of 1621, they reaped their first harvest, 21 acres of corn. What did they do? Their immediate response was to thank God. They marched through the cornfield singing, quote, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Amen. On December 13th, those 58 survivors, along with 80 friendly Indians, got together and celebrated three days of thanksgiving, which the encyclopedia records as three days of preaching, praying, singing, and eating. Sounds like good to church to me. Singing, praying, preaching, and eating. That's where church life came from because we still do it. We pray, we preach, we sing, and then we go eat. That's where it came from. So catch this now. Remember this when you're approached with anything else. Remember, the early pilgrims dedicated this land to God for the advancement of the Christian faith. Jumping ahead. The evidence that our founding fathers built America on Judeo-Christian principles is written on nearly every building, memorial, and monument in our nation's capital. Did you know that? Scriptural and religious references can be found etched or engraved on some of the most important buildings in Washington, D.C. For example, did you know 
that, quote, holiness to the Lord is engraved into a tribute block of the Washington Monument, holiness to the Lord. A sculpture of Moses with the Ten Commandments appears over the east portico of the Supreme Court. The heavens declare the glory of God, a quote from Psalms 19, verse 1, is engraved on a wall of the Library of Congress. Every time you go in there, you see the Bible. And a heartfelt prayer from President John Adams is carved into the stone fireplace in the White House State Dining Room that reads like this, I pray to heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that hereafter inhabit it. Amen. These are just a few of multitudes, I could go on all day, of the many examples of Judeo-Christian imagery you will find in our nation's capital. But there's more. So much for separation of church and state. The original colonies and territories of the United States, with the exception of Virginia, were settled by Europeans escaping persecution for Christian practices that were not tolerated in their own home country. They couldn't own a Bible. They couldn't worship the way they wanted. They were under the oppression of King George. They could not worship God the way they saw fit. And so they said, we can't stand it. We're being martyred. We're being ridiculed. We're leaving, and we're going to find a place where we can practice our faith. And they came here, and when they got here, they really let it go. Thank God we can worship the Lord Jesus in this land of liberty and freedom. So catch this, persecuted Christians fleeing Europe were the founders of every one but one of the original American colonies, persecuted Christians. Early Supreme Court cases reflect this same undeniable fact, the influence of the Christian faith. In an early case brought before the Supreme Court entitled Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States in 1892, Justice David Brewer declared in a unanimous decision, quote, these and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations that this is a Christian nation. So much for separation of church and state. President John Adams said, quote, I believe that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. He knew that the Constitution was written with God-fearing, faith-believing, moral people in mind. And that's why it's a work of genius. And that's why when it's tried, it works. And I think we need to get where we again legalize the Constitution. I never thought I'd have to say that. Yet in spite of undeniable historic proof, America's religious freedom and freedom of speech are right now under serious attack in these United States of America. Recently, religious institutions with strong convictions against abortion were informed by the Obama administration that they must provide contraception coverage to employees, including abortifacients, drugs that cause abortion. As I speak, over 40 Catholic institutions have filed lawsuits against the current administration because of this 
unconstitutional demand. The Obama administration's health care law subsidizes through federal tax dollars insurance plans that cover abortion. The law also forces all insurance plans, with only a few exceptions, to cover contraceptives, including emergency contraceptives that will act after fertilization and cause chemical abortions. You know it as the morning after pill. This presents a huge moral dilemma and will increasingly do so for pro-life, anti-abortion, Bible-believing Christians who believe that abortion is murder against a child. And will know that when paying their taxes or insurance premiums, a part of it's going to go to providing abortions. If the health care law kicks in in 2014 as planned, all Bible-believing Christians, every one of you here today, will face a hard choice because a part of your tax dollars and your insurance premiums will go towards aborting children. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, I read that it's not going to be very much. It's about 10 bucks a year or something like that. Not very much. Let me ask you a question. If you were to walk into a Planned Parenthood today and go up to a little teenage girl sitting on the waiting room bench and hand her $10 to help her do what she's about to do, would you do it? It's the same thing. It's no different. I never thought we'd be here in America it used to be a choice, at least a choice, that if you didn't believe it, you didn't have to do it. And if you did believe it, you could do it. But now, this current administration is content to force us, who have conscience issues in a major way with this, to contribute to it. This is a direct assault against our religious freedom and freedom of conscience. And something must be done, and it must be stopped. Now, furthermore, in America, far-left judges are now ordering the Ten Commandments out of courthouses, not schools, but out of courthouses. Graduating high school and college students are refused the constitutional right to pray in the name of Jesus Christ during their ceremonies. I think they ought to get to the point where, when the ceremony is closing, every student there stands up and says the name of Jesus Christ. What are they going to do with every student there? We must obey God rather than men, and that's our freedom of speech. We have freedom of speech. The ACLU, you know those old friends of ours, or what I call the Against Christian Liberties Union, bring persecution and threats on any public school that dares to step out and pray or invoke the name of God in any official function. That's not constitutional. We have the right to say the name of God, the name of Christ, Merry Christmas, anything we want at any given time of the year in any public place without fear of being persecuted for it. That's our right. Now, I want to be clear about something today. This is not what our founding fathers intended. They came here for freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Here's a fact for you. The phrase separation of church and state that we are so pounded with all the time is not even in the Constitution. It's not there. 
The phrase separation of church and state was coined in the United States in a letter that Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association who were concerned that they were going to come under the same kind of tyranny they had experienced in England and other parts of Europe where they could not exercise their freedom of religion with liberty. They were afraid it was going to happen here. And so Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to them, and in the letter was the phrase, separation of church and state. And what he meant to say by the phrase was that he would keep the government out of the church, not the church out of the government. That's what it was about. Yet organizations like the ACLU distort this fact and they claim, oh, no, 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 no. The founders wanted to keep religion out of the government and out of the public square. They wanted America to be a secular nation that simply allowed private religion to be practiced in the shadows. But history doesn't support that view at all. That's a myth. But unfortunately, even in the church, that myth has gained traction. And I came here today to tell you, we've got to shed that myth because the greatest agent for change in the United States of America is sitting in this sanctuary and other sanctuaries all over the country. Let me give you a little more proof that the founders never intended for the church to be on the sidelines of public life and politics. Never. Our first president, George Washington, took the oath of office and put his hand on what? The Bible. And what was his first official act as president? You may not know this. George Washington kissed the Bible. Mwah! He kissed it. Have you ever kissed your Bible? I have. I'm going to make a... I have. I, I've got a love affair with this Bible. And there have been times I was so thankful for it, I said, Mwah! And George Washington loved it. And being sworn in, he kissed the Bible, and then you know what he did? He held a two-hour praise and worship session in Congress. Congress had a two-hour praise and worship session. If that happened to our Congress today, many of them would die with a coronary on the spot. I would love to see our Congress having a two-hour praise and worship session, worshiping the Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth. How did they determine to open sessions of Congress? Prayer. And who would lead in those prayers? Chaplains. And how would those chaplains be paid? Tax dollars. Separation of church and state? I guess they never got the memo. Does all that sound like they really wanted to keep God out of government? No way. They believed that God was the source of government and that following God would bless the government and that following the Word of God would bless the country. They believed that. And speaking of Congress, who decided to put on our coinage in God we trust? It was adopted by Congress in 1956. If you want to look at the importance of Christianity, God, and the Bible played in the early days of American politics, it's very easy to find if you want to know. The first prayer of the first Congress went like this. Buckle your seatbelts. Quote, O Lord, our Heavenly Father, 
high and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers on earth and reignest with power supreme and uncontrolled over all the kingdoms, empires, and governments. Look down in mercy, we beseech thee, on these our American states who have fled to thee from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection, desiring to be henceforth dependent only on thee. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son and our Savior. Amen. That was the first prayer the first prayer. Separation of church and state? Where did we come up with this? Further proof of Judeo-Christian roots of America are as follows. Listen to this. It'll bless you. In 1776, 11 of the 13 colonies required that one had to be a Christian. I'm going to say that over. In 1776, 11 of the 13 colonies required that one had to be a Christian to be eligible to run for political office. Now if you're a Christian, they pick you apart. You're better off being an atheist so they won't pick you apart. What fools we've become. Professing ourselves to be wise, we have become fools. Fools. In 1777, the Continental Congress voted to spend 300000 Now, in our day, that would be $8 million. They voted to spend $300,000 to purchase Bibles for distribution in the nation. Our Congress distributing Bibles to the nation. The Gettysburg Address states, quote, This nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. 94% of the writings of the founding fathers of the United States contain quotations from the Holy Bible. 94%. The state constitutions of all 50 states mention God. The famous Liberty Bell has part of Leviticus 25, verse 10 inscribed on it, which reads, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. On the Liberty Bell. An image of Moses carrying the tablets of God's law faces the Speaker of the House of Representatives. When the President takes his oath being sworn in, he says, so help me, God. President Thomas Jefferson wrote these words, quote, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Our sixth President, John Quincy Adams, said, quote, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. I wish we could hear some leaders in Washington saying these things today. Wouldn't that just bless you? Wouldn't that make you sleep better at night? The Christian writings and pronouncements of our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, are so voluminous we could not quote them all today. Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president, said in 1911, Quote, America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of the Holy Scripture. Separation of church and state. 
Teddy Roosevelt, America's 26th president, wrote in 1917, quote, in this world, and this is a great one, catch this, in this world, a churchless community, a community where men have abandoned and scoffed at or ignored their religious needs, is a community on the rapid downgrade, which is exactly where we are. We have forsaken God, we have thrown his Bible out, and we're on a downgrade like something I never thought I would see in this country. But it's not too late. It's almost too late, but it's not too late. We can pray, and prayer is the greatest force on earth, and I'm looking again at the greatest agent of change in America. It is the church of Jesus Christ. Old Calvin Coolidge, he put in his two cents. In 1923, our 30th president said this, quote, They were intent upon establishing a Christian commonwealth. Speaking of the founding fathers, in accordance with the principle of self-government, they were an inspired body of men. Who can fail to see in America the hand of destiny? Who can doubt that America has been guided by a divine providence? As we were in the, involved in the heat of World War II, Franklin Roosevelt prayed this prayer on national radio on D-Day, June 6, 1944, as our troops were storming the beaches of Normandy. He prayed to the whole nation, quote, Almighty God, with thy blessing we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogance, speaking of the Nazis. Lead us to the saying of our country, Thy will be done, Almighty God, Amen. Can you imagine a president praying that today on national radio? Harry Truman, our 33rd president, was not known to be a committed believer, but he understood the Judeo-Christian foundations of our country, and he wrote, quote, if men and nations would but live by the precepts of the ancient prophets and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, problems which now seem so difficult would soon disappear. And President Reagan warned, quote, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be one nation gone under. It's time, folks, for modern-day Americans to wake up and act quickly. I don't believe we have long to turn it around. A democracy can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that a democracy always collapses over a loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. We have got to be weaned from the entitlement mentality of this country, and we have got to be returned to the Christian work ethic where every man carries his own load, where you work for the bread that is put on your own table. And God forbid that this election would turn on people who do or don't want to work for a living. The entitlement 
programs of this country are killing us, are collapsing us, are ruining us, and we've got to get back to sanity in a fiscal, monetary sense. Great nations rise and fall by a very familiar cycle. I want you to watch this. And I'm going to close with this, but catch this, because I'm going to show you how America started, how it progressed, and where it is going now. Listen to this. Great nations rise and fall by a cycle. The people begin from going from bondage to spiritual truth to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance. Do you hear America there? From abundance then to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back again to bondage and dictatorship. Where are we right now? We are perilously close to being a nation of dependence. 50% of us don't pay taxes. 50% of us are on food stamps. It's got to be turned. It's got to be changed. It's got to be brought back. And I believe by prayer, the church can make a difference. Before our very eyes, godless, secular, and even dishonest people are seeking to re-engineer America after their own image. They employ the myth of separation of church and state to muzzle the greatest agent for change in the land right here. Folks, we've got to get rid of it. Let me pop that bubble. There is no such thing as separation of church and state. Here's what I want to close with, as was the case in our founding. Christians should be fully involved, fully engaged in the formation of public policy, running for political office, standing up for Christian principles, packing the voting booth with bells on our toes, resisting the evil onslaught that is upon us, and raising high the Christian flag for all to see. The greatness of America is her freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Let's fight to keep them. For without those freedoms, we're nothing more than another nation languishing in the shadows of tin-horned dictators and ruthless opportunists. We are better than that. It's time to take it back. Take it back. Remain standing, and we're going to go into prayer as a church family. You know, I'm saved, and I'm always going to be saved, but I am so deeply concerned for my country. And so we're launching, starting tomorrow, 30 days of prayer in our church. This is where we're going to begin, because I know that's where you make your biggest difference. Prayer. And we, we, we had ordered a bunch of these, Revolution on Our Knees, a little booklet um, that is just great, 30 days of prayer for neighbors and nations. And they all sold out. And so we've ordered more. Um, but they're not here yet. 
but we launch tomorrow morning. Now, for those of you that could not get one of these, they may be here by Wednesday night, but if they're not, we're going to send an e-blast, that means an email announcement, every day until we get these books in, showing you the verse that we're going to be praying over that day. But let's just take day one, starting tomorrow, July 2nd. I'm asking our church family, 1,500 of us strong and growing, to pray together, lock hands and lock faith, and say, God, help us to keep our freedom. Isn't it great for me to get up and preach what I want? Isn't it great for you to be able to assemble? Do you know that that's under attack right now? I hope the day doesn't come that I have to make a decision over my tax dollars being used to abort a child. It's going to cause a gigantic moral dilemma in churches all over the country. How will churches pay taxes after that? What will we do? We need to pray that it never gets there. It's not too late to stop it. 